Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is R.C. the Rapper. That's totally the name your mom gave you when you were born, right? Yeah, on the birth certificate. (laughs) She was like, I know what my son's destiny is going to be like. He's going to be a rapper, even though he's white. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she can just feel it, man. But yeah, no, my name is Conrad, and uh, R.C. the Rapper is what I go by on the microphone. Yes. How do we know each other? So we've ran into each other a couple times now at local freedom rallies here in Edmonton. And we had some really good discussions and that led to you inviting me onto your podcast. I thought you were a good speaker, good interviewer. And so it was a no brainer for me. Yeah. I think for myself, the personal history goes a little bit before meeting you at the freedom rallies. I think browsing through social media, I came across one of your music videos that you had posted. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, it's interesting that the pandemic is so widespread that not only has it influenced the way that we tell stories in our media, but it's also influencing the people who are protesting against everything that's happening. It'd be nice to meet this guy one day and see what he's like. I didn't actually think that would be the case, though, until I got the chance to visit a freedom rally that took place, I think, like a couple months ago, where Chris Skye was supposed to be the main speaker. And no offense, but like my motivation for going to that freedom rally was so that I could meet Chris Skye, because I had seen him go into all these detailed breakdowns as to why everything regarding the restrictions and the pandemic why all of that was probably a scam and how it was a setup for the general public to lose their rights. And I have a whole lot of respect for the guy. I recognize that he's still a flawed human being, but at the same time, just the fact that he has been able to be so accurate in his predictions and the fact that he's not giving up in spite of everything working against him, that is definitely something I consider to be worthy of my respect. And so my intention of going to that rally was to speak to him and just ask him a few questions. Didn't get to spend as much time with him as I wanted because everyone else who was there was also wanting to speak with him. But I saw you perform in person. I made the connection of, oh, yeah, I remember seeing this guy's music video. I'm interested in hearing his story and why he's here at this particular Freedom Rally. And the fact that we were able to have a long enough and in-depth discussion with each other about our own thoughts and feelings regarding the pandemic, that was something I believed was probably a highlight of that particular freedom rally that I attended. But oh man, yeah. I mean, Chris Guy's a huge draw. I have the utmost respect for the guy. He's a great speaker. He's very knowledgeable. He's very charismatic. And yeah, after we did the song, Just Say No, using his hashtag, and that sort of became his slogan. He quickly picked it up and that's how we met. We ended up on the same live stream over at Kevin J. Johnston's show in Calgary. I performed my song and he was speaking intermittently as well, going in and out of Kevin's live stream. And so we met each other first digitally. And then uh, he started posting our song on his platform. It generated like a ton of activity on my platforms. And then like three days later, he got deleted from Instagram the timing there was kind of unfortunate, but we did link up personally. And ever since then, we've sort of been his go-to contact whenever he wants to come through Edmonton. Me and my manager helped put on that rally. And so now we're in the same boat. We're right on the front lines with him. 
And yeah, anytime he comes through Edmonton, he's hitting us up. I think you mentioned earlier that you thought Chris Skye was very knowledgeable. He was a charismatic speaker. I'm assuming that's the first impression that you got from watching him speak on other shows, that infamous one minute and 40 second clip where he was talking about the process of what the Canadian government was trying to do in implementing masking and contact tracing and vaccine passports, all that. What are your own thoughts of him as an actual person? Yeah, the prophetic Jim Bro video. I think, you know, we're not like best friends or anything, but I, I have spent a decent amount of time with him. And he seems very, to me, he seems very genuine. Like he really does care about Canadians' rights and freedoms and rights and freedoms for people in general all around the world. And I mean, you have to be pretty motivated to continue to persevere in the face of everything that he's been challenged with. So to me, like I say, I got respect for the guy. I know he's caught some flack in the media and certain things have been presented trying to slander him and make him look like a certain kind of person. But I've spoken to him about that stuff. And all I'll really say is that none of it's really accurately presented. It is quite literally a slander campaign against him. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I think that he is very genuine in his intentions and he puts a, a lot of work in and I respect him for it. And I think that's sort of like the main driver behind his popularity, because I remember when I first watched that one minute and 40 second video, my immediate impression of him was that he was kind of like that douchebag from your high school reunion who always keeps bragging about how he almost became a quarterback for the football team. And regardless of how accurate that assessment is, he is still right about a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And whether he has insider information or not, I don't know. But like the fact that he is right when other people are clearly wrong about their own predictions, it sort of gravitates that idea of, okay, maybe we should look to him for advice. And also, as you said, like regardless of whatever his beliefs might be in regards to certain people groups, I do think that the cause that he is advocating for is quite inclusive. It's affecting everyone in the entire world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when your entire case is resting on screenshots of Twitter comments from like six, five, six years ago, I think it's pretty safe to say that you're grasping at straws. And again, I've spent enough time with him to know that I really don't think he's a bigoted person. He's just about merits in, in the same way that I am. I look right past a person's appearance, even when it comes to a guy like Chris Sky. you know, the way that he looks carries a certain connotation, Jim bro, whatever you want to call it. But I don't care about any of that. And I apply that to my interactions with everyone. What I listen to is the information, where they're coming from, what they're talking about, is it relevant? Is it accurate? And, you know, that's what I base all of my respect on. It's got nothing to do with appearance. And yeah, like you said, I, I think that he is accurate. It's coming from a genuine place. And I mean, his predictions have been much more accurate than any of the modeling that has guided public policy. So yeah, I'd say Chris Guy is leading the scoreboard against public health officials <laughs> all the way. Yes. But enough about Chris Guy. Let's focus the attention back on you. How has God been working your life this week or as of late? Well, yeah, it's funny that you ask that because I would consider myself 
agnostic. Like I'm not an atheist, but I have a lot of trouble with like instant man-made institutions. And whenever a man-made institution is trying to get me to think a certain way, I'm always very hesitant to that. But I've always found like the Bible and the whole concept of God very interesting. I'm always open-minded. But for me, I want to be able to explain things in a more mechanical sense. I want to be able to break things down, even spiritually. So that's led me to some pretty in-depth explanations about reality and, you know, the meaning of life and how this stuff all works. But over the last couple of weeks, I have a, a friend in the, the freedom movement. You, you might know her. She was from Calgary. And I mean, she's all over the place now, but she lived in Calgary for a while, was heavily involved in the Walk for Freedom movement out there. Her name's Misty, Misty Wind, and she's very Christian. And she has been in Edmonton and she's actually been staying with me. And she's uh, the kind of Christian that has a huge study Bible with all kinds of highlighted marks and uh, like sticky notes everywhere. She's got her face in the Bible every day and she's been showing me certain things and things have been happening. The spiritual community might call them like synchronicities, whatever you want to call them, just, just things that unfold in, in life itself that seem to be indicating some sort of divine, you know, greater intelligence or humor, whatever you want to call it. But I feel like through all of this, my mind has been opened up a little bit. And as we speak, she gave me a, a Bible of my own. So now I have one and uh, I've been flipping through it myself and I'm finding a lot of wisdom in the words. I'm still not totally sold on the institutional aspect of Christianity. I think that ultimately those words, probably a lot of them were divinely inspired to begin with, but they've been sort of curated by man over the years to portray a, a certain ideology that would keep people more compliant, basically an ancient version of what we're seeing today. But I think it was a lot more difficult for them to obscure the true knowledge back then than it is today with the state of technology, just because it would have to have been a slow, gradual process. There was no smartphones or anything back then. So they would have had to just edit it slowly over time. And that would be how you keep people from noticing any drastic changes. So, yeah, I think like anything else, my take on it's pretty nuanced. But yeah, I'm reading the Bible now <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. So that's how God's been working in my life. That's cool. That's really cool. A couple of points that I kind of want to address before I go into my own life story, I guess, or life chapter. So I think I agree with you that there have definitely been institutions that have come in and interpreted the Bible a certain way and tried to force the implementation of that interpretation across anyone else who is a part of that institution. Catholicism immediately comes to mind. Any specific denomination with a corporate structure immediately comes to mind. I think that Christianity is malleable enough, though, to the point where like, you can still find a church that isn't as structured and corporate and you can go there and not have to worry about, oh, okay, maybe like these people are trying to ram down a specific vision on down my throat. I, I do think that we need some sort of structure in order to make sure that things run the way they should. But I, I also think that when you rely too much on structure and too much on form, then when things start going wrong, and you don't realize they're going wrong, 
that can be a bit of a detriment. And I think the most obvious example that I can think of is probably last year when every single conservative church that agreed to shut down or agreed to abide by the restrictions that were being imposed on them by various provincial governments here in Canada, they did it because the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 13, that you need to be willing to obey the government and do whatever they tell you to do. And I think back then, there were good reasons to believe the government was on the side of the people, that they were trying to do whatever they could to protect the people. Nowadays, I think that if anyone is still trying to defer to that particular passage of the Bible, and they don't recognize that the government has deliberately or otherwise been screwing us over, that is a little bit out of touch with reality, I'd say. I feel like in a lot of ways, that's sort of what these institutions were trying to do over time is to transfer the authority of God and the divine into the top of the hierarchy of man, like yeah. government and, and sort of make people fear government the same way and respect government the same way that they should be respecting God. Like we got a bunch of Bibles here now because like I say, Misty had been staying with us. And one of them is a study Bible and pretty much all of the, the footnotes, they all come back to very simple concepts, which to me, remove the, the power and the authority from the individual. And it just always keeps coming back to, you know, Christ is the solution and faith in Christ is the solution, but it doesn't really break that down. It doesn't really explain what that actually means. It just says pretty much in response to, to everything, all the sort of challenges that come up, all the, all the analysis just say the solution is believing in Christ. And to me, that's not quite good enough. And it just seems like very simple solutions for complex analogies and statements and metaphors. So yeah, like I said, nothing to me is, is black and white. There's a little bit of truth in everything. And you just got to explore all of the nuances. Yeah. And I think that ties in a little bit as to how God has been working my life over the last week. Last night, I was attending a revival meeting at my church, the summit, and the worship was good. As always, the message that was being preached was about the in-between and what that was referring to was when you get a promise from God or a prophecy from God. And when you see that prophecy fulfilled, there's usually a bit of time in between. Sometimes it can be a day, sometimes it can be decades. And usually within that space of time, like if that prophecy is really important, there's often a season of crushing. And if you're in that period of crushing, you can either respond by being angry and cursing and just not acting like a Christian, or you can rely on Christ and you can know that your identity is in him and you can allow that sort of love that comes from him to pour out of you and the sense of peace and security. And like, I know all of that sounds very simplistic of like, oh, we're dealing with a government that is trying to take away our freedom and our rights and our bodily autonomy, how on earth are we supposed to get practical answers from this sort of teaching? But I think like at the very least, it is going to be something that is psychologically helpful to you. You can either choose to react in fear and anger, or you can choose to react in peace, knowing that 
God is still with you. And like my roommate is Ethiopian. I know plenty of people who are Ethiopian. Their parents came from a country that was very dysfunctional, very broken. The country is still relatively poor. And I remember whenever anyone is talking about what Ethiopia is like, they usually say that the people over there are very poor, but at the same time, they're also very joyful. And the people they know who are the most joyful are people who are Christians like them. And that's a country that has been through plenty of oppressive governments. And it's like, how do we subvert? How do we resist something like that? I don't know if we can take anything practical out of that. I think there are certainly practical lessons within the Bible. Nothing's immediately coming to mind, but at the very least, psychologically speaking, there is definitely an answer. And I think for myself, the way that needs to apply in my own life is that yesterday, the Canadian government announced that it was mandating all of its federal employees to get vaccinated. And if the employees didn't want to get vaccinated, then they'd be getting fired. And I just so happened to work for Canada Post, which is a crown corporation. It's affiliated with the government. Technically, it's not part of the federal government, but at the same time, it looks like if I don't get vaccinated by the end of October, I'm probably going to lose my job. And as someone who hasn't really had a whole lot of success in maintaining employment, as sad as it might sound, I still want this job. It is the highest paying job that I've gotten. It's the best job that I've ever had. I don't want to have to work in retail anymore. And so like, there are these questions in my mind of like, okay, God, what is going to happen here? I don't believe that you're calling me to take this vaccine. I also don't believe that if I take the vaccine, I'm going to die or I'm going to get seriously sick because I know enough about my destiny to know that like, I'm going to be safe, but I, I also don't feel comfortable playing into the system and it's depressing, but at the same time, I also know that I've been through so many other horrible things in my life and God has carried me through and whatever happens going forward, I also will continue to believe that. Yeah. Just say no, my friend, just say no. (laughs) But yeah, just going back to the beginning of that, I think that there's a lot more overlap between me and the Christian community than I previously realized. And I've been learning over the last couple of weeks, talking to my very Christian friend, but I think that I see things in a very similar way, just with a slightly different slant on the perspective. Like I think that holding a positive outlook and a positive thoughts and being optimistic is very important. And whatever way that you can find to do that, I think that does translate directly into your experience of the world. So, you know, that's what I'll say about that. But moving on to the issue of the treatment, the vaccines, and the pressure that we're all under. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm blessed enough to not be under any pressure from an employer or anything like that. I I don't have any circumstances that anybody could hold over my head. So I'm not going to be getting it and plan to be one of the few remaining unvaccinated people in Canada. And we'll see how that goes for me. I also don't think that the jab is going to kill 90% of the population next winter. Although I'm not totally convinced that that wasn't their plan. But There's just too many unknowns here to say anything for sure. But ultimately, I think that there is an evil agenda in place here that revolves all around control, 
a modern form of enslavement where the enslaved are unaware that they are being enslaved. And a lot of them are not just compliant, but are actually in support of their own enslavement. But ultimately, I think that they are wrestling against nature itself. They're trying to control things like a, a virus and even the minds and bodies of people. And I think that what they're going to find is that the human being is a much more resilient thing than they thought and that nature cannot be controlled to the degree that they think it can be. I think that whatever they had planned is not going to be anywhere near as effective as they thought it was going to be. I think this has already happened in a lot of ways. I think that the original virus was made in a lab and it was designed to sort of fit in and, and take over the flu. But I do think that they wanted it to be a lot worse. I mean, they obviously want it to be worse than it is because of the way that they're cooking the numbers and framing everything up in the media. They are trying so hard to make it worse than it really is. So just with that, taking that into consideration, I feel like they wanted there to be a lot more death and destruction. But what happens is nature seeks balance. Nature seeks osmosis. And whenever a virus jumps from species to species, like they say it does, there will be an initial period of turmoil where the virus is acclimatizing to the new host. And that's when it causes problems because it's attempting to work the same way in new machinery as it's been used to working in, in old machinery that's different. And that's where the problems arise. That's what manifests itself as sickness and what ends up killing the host in some of these more serious viruses. But I mean, this has already happened to a large degree with tuberculosis in India. There's many examples that you can point to where over time, what the, a virus does is it becomes more benign as it acclimatizes to a new host. And because the virus doesn't want to kill its environment, it wants to live in its environment. And the best way for it to do that is cause as little intrusion as possible. So over time, it will learn how to coexist with the host and cause as mild symptoms as possible, if, if not none at all in, in most cases. And I think that this happened very quickly with CV-19, SARS, CoV-2. And I think that the same thing is going to be true for the vaccine. Whatever they were planning, they're going to find out that the human body is much more resilient than they thought. And even if it does turn out to be a very bad thing that affects most of the people who got it over time, I do think it's going to take some time rather than, you know, wipe out 80, 90% of the population in, in a winter. And that window is going to be basically the, the turning point of all of humanity, where everybody sort of wakes up and realizes what, is, what has happened to us. And, but we still have enough of us here to turn the world around, basically. So I think my main argument against uh, human extinction as part of the agenda of, say, pharmaceutical companies or governments is that the pharmaceutical companies need people to keep taking their vaccines in order to keep making money. You can't do that with people dying en masse, right? Yeah, well... Like I said, you know, there's too many unknowns here and I can totally get behind that logic because it makes a lot of sense. You know, why would they want to kill 80, 90% of their customers? But there's always another perspective. There's always another framework that can make that scenario make sense. And to my, my counter argument to that would be, well, this isn't about money anymore. It's about control. And a big part of control is logistics. 
You know, you need to physically be able to control, move, restrict human beings en masse in, in order to control large portions of people. And I think that there's just too many people on the earth to be controlled and they know that. So the elites, whatever you want to call it, they have enough money now for, for thousands of lifetimes. So it, again, it's not really about that. What they really want is control. And in removing 80 to 90% of the people on this planet, that makes the remaining 10, 20% a much more manageable number when they start you know, getting into the really, really heinous stuff, like putting people in camps because they're sick. But again, none of this is guaranteed. None of this is for sure. I have no idea. But it's part of my array of hypothesis that I've got going on here. I have sort of a spectrum of possibilities as to what's going to happen. And I, I really have no idea. But that's just another perspective that I've thought of before. I think from my own end, the best hypothesis that I can think of that lines up with everything that I know and believe is that it's probable that these vaccines are meant to normalize getting injected regularly because we know that Justin Trudeau, our glorious prime minister of Canada, has ordered booster shots from Pfizer up until the end of 2024. And so unless those vaccines are for people who are just turning 13 or, I don't know, other people who decided that they didn't want to get vaccinated until two years after it was introduced into the market, I think that anyone who has gotten vaccinated right now, they're probably going to continue getting vaccinated through booster shots for the next couple of years. And if the behavior of getting injected repeatedly on a regular time frame, if that becomes normalized, then that allows you the opportunity to inject other things like RFID chips or technology like that with the promised benefit of things like you would be able to use these devices to track your health and you don't have to wear a wristwatch anymore. And ultimately, I believe whether this is conscious or otherwise in the uh, book of Revelation, there is this passage that talks about this thing called the mark of the beast, which is used as a sign of worship towards someone who's going to be the Antichrist. And the idea is that if you take this mark, it has to be on your hand or your forehead, and you cannot buy or sell anything without it. And it's like, okay, Christian conspiracy theorists have been sounding the alarm for this like for decades. And now we're finally seeing a prototype for that happening with the vaccine passports. And once again, this is why I don't want to get vaccinated because I don't want to have to play into the system of eventually supporting something like that, especially if it means that I'm going to have to give up my own religion in order to be able to buy and sell items on the marketplace. Yeah. So, okay. I, yeah, I must say like the mark of the beast and, and the whole end times thing. I mean, it, it seems like we really are living that right now. So I forgot to mention that earlier, but I'm, I'm definitely taking notice of all of the parallels here. It's definitely not lost on me. So I do find that very, very interesting. And with your analysis there, I, I think you nailed it. To me, that is also the most likely scenario here out of my spectrum of possibilities that I talked about. I think that having people die en masse, it just, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I think it would be too obvious. 
And I think it's more about a long-term plan for control. And like you say, to normalize getting injections, if they are able to implement this passport, then, you know, they can pretty much just start adding things to that passport. They can add whatever they want to it once it's in place. And, you know, what are people going to do? They've, they've already basically voted for this by going to get a shot. We're over half now, probably well over half now of Canada double jabbed. I think we're close to 60% now. From when I last checked the statistics, 80% of the country has gotten at least one jab and 70% have gotten two. So 70% have gotten two. Wow. 70- okay. Yeah. So, I mean, there you go. We've already had a sort of a uh, incognito vote on this and everyone, 70% of us have voted for the passport apparently. So now that that's in place, they know that they can just at any point, they can come out and say, okay, you know, we'll get a passport that allows the 70% of you that have gotten the jab, all your freedoms back and allows you to participate in society. And we're going to shun out all the nonconformists. And then from there, like I say, they can basically just start adding things, you know, what's going to stop them from saying, okay, now we need this and this and this in order for you to maintain all your rights and freedoms. And I think ultimately, that's probably what it's all about. I don't think that there's anything good coming out of vaccinations. You know, I've gotten vaccinations myself, even just a couple of years before the pandemic, I got a tetanus shot, because that's where I was at in my life been listening to a lot of Neil deGrasse Tyson explain how this stuff works. But now, you know, everything that's happened has caused me to place the entire concept of vaccination under a much higher degree of scrutiny. And I think a lot of other people are in the same boat too, have gone through a similar process. And now my eyes have been open to many more things now that I've placed the whole concept under that kind of scrutiny. And I think ultimately vaccines like all of them nowadays are causing way more issues than they solve. I do think there is some merit to the the science and, and the concept behind vaccinations, but I'm talking more about like the old school, the actual proper definition of the word. But ultimately, I think that they, they cause a lot of side effects and this can be, you know, a mild rash that lasts a few days, or it can be chronic issues that don't develop for years after the fact. But for example, as part of my educational journey here, I've been looking into the history of vaccines and vaccine studies, many critical ones that the advocates will tell you don't exist. But basically, there's some very, very revealing studies that look at the childhood vaccination schedule compared to overall rates of childhood illness. And they found actually that there was an inverse correlation with the amount of vaccines that children are issued in childhood and the amount of sickness in those children as they grew up. And they found that the more vaccinations children were given, the more likely they were to visit the hospital for any reason, basically, and develop chronic issues over time that weren't typically linked to vaccines. But that correlation is definitely there. And so I think that ultimately, it's just about getting people to normalize the concept of injecting themselves with these things, which then creates more pharmaceutical customers. This is already happening, actually. Pfizer has a couple of drugs, one for blood clots and another one for heart inflammation. And those drugs in the first quarter of 2021 jumped up by around 15% and 70%, respectively. So there you go. They create the problem and they have the solution, which of course they make a profit off of. 
And I think that's the most likely long game here in my mind. So what you were mentioning earlier about the number of vaccines that children had gotten and how it actually caused more issues later on in life, would you say then that you're totally opposed, like you had a kid to them getting any kind of vaccination or would you be like, eh, maybe two or three would be enough. But aside from that, I'm not taking any chances and I'm only going with what I see as like the most effective options. No, well, I trust nature far more than I trust man. And if I were to have a child, that child would be out natural 100%. I'm not interested in any vaccines. I think that the future lies in terrain theory. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term or the concept, but this idea of germ theory and pathogens in, in the environment, that's true, but that's only half of the topic. The other half is what's happening inside of us. How are these pathogens met? What kind of terrain do they encounter when a human being does come into contact with a pathogen? That's terrain theory. That's talking about the immune system and what the pathogen has to overcome in order to cause illness in a human being. And it turns out, like, we already know this with COVID, you know, to everything with a grain, because a lot of the information that we have, all the information that we have does come from institutions who are trying to portray a certain agenda. But I mean, even still with their best attempts, we know that the majority of people who test positive have little to no symptoms. And that's because, yes, they've come into contact with the pathogen, it's present in their bodies. And, you know, with the state of testing, who knows if that contact was six months ago or six days ago, but whatever the case, they've come into contact with the pathogen and they basically didn't even know that they were sick because their immune system has completely neutralized it. And I think that the more I learn, the more convinced I am that all forms of illness stem from toxicity in the environment and chronic buildups of these various forms of toxicity in the body and basically overwhelming the body's own ability to deal with the environment because like basically everything's trying to kill us these days from the food to the air you know the wi-fi in our homes probably but as long as your body has what it needs and you, you take good care of yourself and you maintain the strength of your immune system i'm of the opinion that you you really don't have much to worry about and as we go forward into the future I, I do think that this is the future as in terms of the medical consensus. Hopefully we get there sooner than later because germ theory is causing a lot of problems in my opinion, but I'm hopeful that we'll get there. Essentially what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, correct? Yeah. Yeah. You could say that. That sums it up pretty good. Changing the topic slightly. As of this recording, there are rumors abounding that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party are going to call another federal election that's going to be held in September. By the time this episode airs, it's probably going to already have happened. And by the time that most people listen to this episode, the results will probably have been decided. I feel like some people believe that this might be a chance to defeat Trudeau and take him down and take down his policies. But do you ultimately feel like there's any possibility for change as a result of this election? Or is it just a lost cause no matter what? Well, I have an opinion here just based on what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling. 
again, I, I could be wrong, but what I actually think is going to happen is that before we get to the election or, or right around the time of the election in September, I think that cases are going to start going back up again. And that's because what the PCR tests are really measuring is just seasonal illness in general. And I, like I said, I do think COVID is a real pathogen that exists, but it sort of blends in with everything else. And so COVID is a part of the mix, but basically all we're talking about is the regular flu season. And we've been trying to suppress that with vaccines for decades and decades to no avail until COVID came along, of course, and then we totally cured the flu go figure. But yeah, I think the cases, they're already starting to creep up. But I think as we move into September, they're going to start spiking pretty hard. And then I think that the government's going to say, oh my goodness, the fourth wave is upon us and it's all the anti-vaxxers fault. And, and this is way worse than before, whether there actually are metrics to prove that or not, they'll, they'll try to find some way to, to spin it that way. And then they'll say, it's just too dangerous to have an election right now. Because I've seen articles that are basically already priming us for this. They say, oh, yeah, no, we've got the vaccine out. Everything should be fine for an election in September. But the only you know, thing that could throw a wrench into these plans is if we have some unprecedented spike, some crazy next wave of the pandemic that just dwarfs everything that came before this. And then, you know, we might have to postpone the election again. So... We'll see. Time will tell. But I would actually be surprised if like a normal election really does take place in September. Like if they do hold an election, it'll be not a normal one, you know, like a mail in or something like that. You can do a Zoom call. They're going to try to find some way to keep the ball squarely in their court. I think that in all likelihood, if an election gets called and it still happens next month in September and if it does get to the point where cases are rising up, where people don't feel safe, it's possible that they might introduce mail-in ballots. I don't know if Elections Canada has the necessary materials to allow that to happen. I'm someone who's worked on election duty for federal elections before, and I can say that I feel reasonably certain that the system that we operate under, it's pretty airtight. There's little chance for fraud, but I do believe that if a mail-in ballot option is implemented, like what happened in the States last year, it's not going to result in anything that's entirely favorable. Yeah, I just wanted to say, like, I think that they're just going to sort of use the, the chaos to sort of just do, do whatever they want in terms of the election. They've already done that basically in just in coming out and saying, oh, we're postponing the election until it's safe to do so. And so they're just writing their own rules. They're making their own playbook. And I think that in general, that's probably what's going to happen. They're just going to say the cases are rising, you know, wh whether they have to postpone it or whether they try and do it a different way or they'll make excuses like, oh, it's too dangerous. And, and we just we don't have the means to conduct an, an election right now. It'll be something along those lines. They're just going to use the chaos to be like, oh, I guess we can't do this the way that we planned, the normal way. Yeah, but I think that if anything, the liberal government, right now it's a minority government, I think they would probably want to be back in the majority, especially with bills such as Bill C-10, I believe it was, the censorship bill, failing to yeah. go through parliament. If they want to be able to pass policies like that, then they are going to need more strength in the government, which they don't 
really have. And so once again, if they're mandating vaccines for federal workers right now, instead of just being willing to let people take vaccines on their own time, and if they're not giving the explicit reason that it's because they fear that a fourth wave is coming and they just want to make sure that everyone in the country is as safe as possible, then it indicates to me, at the very least, that the Liberal Party of Canada is trying to operate on an accelerated timeline for something that goes beyond simply getting vaccinated. And it's, it's something that they need to pull off fairly soon. Yeah, that is how a lot of this feels. It feels like they're really rushing towards something. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Like, I feel like that's sort of a red flag and an indicator that maybe there is something really bad about these shots. And that's why they're so desperate for as many people to take them as quickly as possible before whatever is going to happen becomes known. So it's just, just kind of a side note from my brain there. But yeah. Only time will tell. Yeah. How do you feel like our provincial government of Alberta has been handling the crisis, especially under the leadership of our great and glorious leader, Jason Kenney? Well, I find it very interesting because when all this kicked off, I think it was like October of 2020, maybe it was sooner than that, but whatever the case, at some point early on, Jason Kenney, he came out publicly and he made this statement talking about how the World Economic Forum is trying to use COVID to do a a great reset. And he said, it's not a conspiracy theory. And Klaus Schwab himself from the World Economic Forum sent me his book. And he went on to describe how the book is, in his own words, I believe he said something along the lines of, it's a grab bag of left-wing ideologies that he does not subscribe to. So that, that was pretty strong. I mean, I heard about that and I was like, oh, wow, I guess I'm in the right place then. But then I think it was like three days later, he came out and basically did a 180 degree reversal and said, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we, we do need to take this thing seriously and it is a real issue and we need lockdowns and masks and we're going to go full force with the implementation of these health measures and then enter Dr. Dina Hinshaw and her health orders. And it seemed like he went from being totally enlightened to the agenda to all of a sudden being a proponent and being part of it and leading the charge on it. So, you know, we don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but that would seem to indicate that something happened almost immediately after he made his first public statement that caused him to change his mind that caused him to switch his stance to such a drastic degree and then from there i mean we've had like almost a year of harsh measures that were just lifted recently in the face of vaccination rollout and cases dropping off to nothing in the summer which happened last year by the way without a vaccine just for everyone's information cases dropped off to nothing last summer as well but they don't want to talk about that Again, because all we're doing is measuring seasonal illness in general. And now it's really interesting because we've almost become the Texas of Canada in that Dr. Dina Hinshaw has now not only lifted all of our restrictions, but she's saying, you know, we're not going to implement more restrictions come the fall. And she's literally said that we're just going to have to learn to live with COVID. And this is what the conspiracy theorists have been saying for, for years. So 
it's going to be interesting to see. I think that we've up until very recently, we've handled it much like everybody else. It hasn't been a whole lot different. It's been, it's got pretty bad for a while. I mean, there was a point just a few months ago when a gathering of five or more people outside was an arrest or a ticketable offense with a high price tag. And now we're free and open again. So ultimately, I think they're taking us on a bit of a roller coaster ride. I think that if a guy like me who dropped out of high school and then went and reluctantly got his GED can figure all this stuff out, I feel like Dr. Dina Hinshaw has got to know that it's an endemic seasonal problem, that cases are going to go back up next fall. And I think they're just waiting for that. And then they're going to shift course again. But like I said, it's, it's impossible to know. Only time will tell. But it is a very interesting course that we've taken here in Alberta. And I think what you said earlier about being optimistic, optimistically, I would like to believe that when fall and winter comes rolling around, we're not going to shut down. We're not going to be going back to the restrictions that we were living under for most of the last year. But on the other hand, there's also precedent. And it also feels like no matter what the provincial government does to assert any kind of rights and freedoms that we have, the federal government will somehow step in and override those laws. Like, for example, the vaccine passports. Here in Alberta, there is a specific law that was passed that said, like, you can't force your employees to get vaccinated. We're not going to be having vaccine passports. But that doesn't matter because the federal government is now saying that if you don't want to get vaccinated, then you can't travel on a plane outside of Canada. And they are planning on instituting that vaccine passport system by December at the earliest. Earlier on last year, when there was the pilot program over, I believe it was the Calgary International Airport, where you could get tested. And if your test came back negative after three days, you could go back home without any issues or worrying about quarantine, that was completely overridden by the federal government. And so even if we're living in the Texas of Canada, I still don't necessarily feel that we're entirely safe. Unless, of course, you got vaccinated and you bought into the system, then you're probably going to be totally fine. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Then you'll be fine to have the giant boot of tyranny stomping on your face forever. (laughs) But yeah, I think you're right. I think that there's always a a greater agenda at play and they're always going to try to assimilate the smaller bodies. I also, I think that, you know, I could be wrong, but the timing seems pretty interesting to me considering all this stuff that's been going on with Pat King and his court case. And, you know, he's getting like fact checked and, and debunked now and stuff, but ultimately Who is Pat King and what did he do? Yeah. So, okay. Pat King is an Albertan. He's from Red Deer. He's a a military veteran with a a prosthetic limb. So he's paid the ultimate price for, for his country. Well, not the ultimate price, but about as close as you can without giving your life for his country. He's given a limb, literally. And so he obviously loves this country and has fought to defend it. And that trend carries on today. He has been rallying against this stuff from the beginning, and he received a ticket for his rallying. It was like a not wearing a mask or being in a gathering, something along those lines. I can't remember what the specific charge was, but 
basically what he did was he used that ticket to compel Dr. Dina Hinshaw to produce the evidence that supports the idea that there is a dangerous pandemic that's a, a threat to the average person. And that all starts with the very simple existence of the virus itself. So in order for there to be an epidemic of SARS-CoV-2, then SARS-CoV-2 has to exist, correct? Makes sense. Seems simple enough. And you would think that if there was a pandemic of SARS-CoV-2, that that data would be easily available and well-known to somebody like Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Well, it turns out that's not the case. Now, the way that the court proceeding broke down is they said that they didn't have to do that because that's not relevant to Pat's ticket. They basically made it a technicality and they didn't come right out and say that they didn't have it. But what they said was that it was not relevant to his tickets. So therefore, they didn't need to provide it. However, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that that's not true. That is definitely something that they should have to verify and data that they should have in order to prove that there's a pandemic. So yes, they did sort of avert disaster there by citing their technicality. But at the same time, he's opened up a very important avenue of conversation. And that leads right back to the fact that the virus has never been isolated, purified, and the complete genome sequence isolated in a pure sense. You know, there's um, something called Cox, Cox postulate, which has never been satisfied either. But that's kind of another topic. If anybody's interested, just look up Cox postulate. It's a process whereby you remove the suspected viral pathogen from somebody who's sick with it then you isolate it, you find it on its own, and then you introduce it to another body and it produces the same kind of sickness. None of this stuff has been done. And therefore there really isn't any proof in all of the world that the virus even exists. And this is sort of what it all boils down to. So the Alberta government has been dealing with this. And at the same time, pretty much right at the same time, that's when they started changing their tune and said, okay, we're going to lift restrictions and we're not bringing them back. And COVID is just something we're going to have to live with. So I do find that interesting, the timing of it. Personally, I, I think might have something to do with it because they're trying to just make it seem like everything's all good. Everything's fine. We're open again. COVID isn't an issue. So therefore, nobody needs to talk about it. This topic of discussion about isolation and the uh, virus being sequenced you know, just don't worry about that because, because we're open for business again, kind of thing. I think yeah. that it might be a little bit too far reaching to say that the virus doesn't exist because there's no proof of it, because like you can say that for anything or for, for other things. Yeah, well, like, I, like, like I, I do, like, for I example, think that it exists. Yeah. Like for example, yeah, go ahead. someone might look at me and say, well, God doesn't exist because there's no proof of him. And well, my immediate answer to that might be like, well, I might not be able to see him. I might not be able to touch his arm or anything like that, but I do know that I exist and I know that there's a creator somewhere. So for lack of a better way of explaining it, I am going to assume there is a God and I am going to assume that if he created me with a purpose, then he probably cares about me. And so in the case of the virus, we might say, well, it's never been officially sequenced we don't have any official record of it in the sense of like a biological record, but at the very least, we can see its effects. However, I think something that is interesting to note, if Dina Henshaw 
and the people at Alberta Health Services were to fully disclose the information regarding the coronavirus and who exactly has been most impacted by it. Something interesting to note, I was reading through this report a couple of months ago by a guy named Julius Ruchel. I think that's how he pronounced his name. But in it, he made mention of how out of everyone who's died from COVID-19, the people who are most likely to be affected are those who live in long-term care homes, where the death rate is like 19.5%. Hospitals, where the death rate, I believe, is a little bit under 8%. And prisons, where the death rate is around 2%. And everyone else, every other community, like retail stores, like hair salons, churches, even outdoor transmission, it's almost negligible. And so that's the national average. If similar statistics were to come out of reports from Alberta Health Services, then I think people would look at that and realize, oh, shoot, this is kind of stupid. Like we can still go to the stores. We can still do what we want with our lives. Maybe it's not a good idea to go to a long-term care home or a hospital, but, you know, most people aren't going to be that desperate. So Maybe, maybe it's worth just living life and dealing with the consequences of getting sick as long as we're not likely to die from this. Yeah, well, so a couple of things here. Like, first of all, like what's crazy to me is that the sort of data that you're talking about, age stratified and, and just really clearly broken down, that's already provided by Health Canada. And I was just looking at this the other day. If you go to Google and if you type in epidemiological data, Canada, COVID-19, it'll bring you to this webpage that has all kinds of breakdowns and, and you can set your own parameters and stuff for some of the graphs. And it shows very clearly the huge age stratification that we have in the distribution of the COVID deaths. So I think last time I checked, it's upwards of 90% of the total deaths that we have, which was just below 27,000. I think it was 26,700 last time I checked. And over 90% of those are over the age of 60. The average age of death is 82 and a half. Average age of COVID death is 82 and a half in all of Canada. Meanwhile, the average life expectancy in Canada is 82. So in order to figure out if this really is an issue that is, is causing something abnormal to take place, as in excess deaths, then we have to look at you know, things like the total number of ICU admissions and the total number of deaths. And what we see is that not only is the average age of the COVID death higher than the average life expectancy in Canada, we see that through freedom of information requests done by some freedom fighters here in Canada, we have Chris Scott at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mirror, Alberta. He has been fighting against lockdowns in the form of keeping his business open and basically just defying all of the orders that are placed upon him, all the restrictions, all the fines. He's just said, nope, nope, we're not doing it. We'll take you to court and kind of a similar strategy to Pat King will mount a constitutional argument, a charter argument, and get you to verify all of your data and prove that it's uh, demonstrably justifiable. 
he did a freedom of information request on the total numbers of ICU admissions from 2015 to 2020 in Alberta. And then we have Adamson Barbecue, Adam Skelly at Adamson Barbecue in Ontario. Same story as Chris Scott. He kept his business open and, and did not adhere to any of the restrictions, fines, lockdowns, and he'd lost his business for it. But he did the same thing in Ontario. He filed the freedom of information request to get the total numbers of ICU admissions from 2015 to 2020. Both provinces showed the same thing. There was literally no difference in terms of overall ICU admissions. In fact, 2017 and 2018 were worse years. The total numbers of ICU admissions were higher. So that clearly shows us that there's nothing abnormal happening in terms of what we would expect as far as normal amounts of death in our Canadian population. And then you can also look at just the total numbers of death in Canada. And usually how this is broken down is a year over year increase by percentage. And uh, there's all kinds of like scientific studies that try to show that there's been an excess amount of deaths. The CDC has actually done this in the States. And what they'll do is they'll take a one period of one year and then create an aggregate, an average of that period using previous years. And then they'll do some complicated like mathematical modeling equation and then apply that to the same time frame in the current year. And it's just way more complicated than it needs to be, considering that you can just take the total numbers and add them up and look at them and see what you got. And I was just having a conversation with a guy the other day, and he was trying to tell me, oh, no, there's, there's excess deaths. And science has shown this. And I told him, well, show me, because I've looked at what you're looking at. And I'm telling you what I just explained. I said, these studies, it's typically modeling, and it's not scientific at all. Just try to find the raw data, the year over year totals and let's take a look. So he pulled it up on his phone right there. And it was just like I told him, it was the percentage of increase in the total amount of deaths for all causes in Canada increased by like 0.5, like a very small margin. And he was like, oh yeah, well, no, like it seems small, but like when you take into account the population and like, it's actually a huge, huge number. And then I said, well, yeah, but look at all the previous years, look at what led up to this. And then he starts looking, we start doing the math and we see that previous years had increased 0.6, 0.7, And so that's a bigger increase again in like 2017, 2018 than we saw in 2020. And when you dial up all these factors, it's very clear to me that what we're talking about is a reclassification. We've taken what would usually be attributed to the flu, general forms of seasonal illness, all kinds of flu and cold viruses that end up, you know, unfortunately taking people out at the end of their life when their immune systems are weakened. And when it comes to COVID, all they've done is shift the blame. But when you look at the totals, literally nothing has changed. So I can't quite remember what my initial point was, but <laughs> that... Uh, the government and media are using statistics to make the problem seem much worse than it actually is. And they're not going to reveal the truth or at least publicize the truth because doing so would undermine all of the decisions they've made for the last, what, year and a half now? Right, right. Yeah, because they want it to be worse than it is. And that's, that's clear through their actions and behavior and narratives. Okay. How much do you think government policy making is attributable to stupidity instead of genuine malice? 
Well, it's not quite stupidity. It's more like, I guess, naivety would be a better word, but that doesn't quite capture it. I I think this is actually a very, very nuanced question, and it has to do with conformity. And I think that what they're trying to do is they're trying to put this narrative out there that's just sort of pervasive, and it's like floating around in the air, and nobody knows where it really comes from, or its origins, or the data that really drives it. And basically that narrative is that COVID is bad. It's the worst thing ever. And we need to lock down and restrict people's rights and and put on masks because that's the benevolent thing to do. And the only way out is the vaccine and total compliance with whatever the government tells you to do, despite the fact that they've been wrong every step of the way. That's sort of the gist of it. And the way that they get this out there is just through the media. They put out these news reports that people take as scientific data that actually contain no scientific data at all. They just put some expert on the screen that says a bunch of things, and then they do this over and over and over and over again to the point that the masses, the majority of people, just assume that all this is true. They don't know that it's true. They can't tell you why this is the case. They're just like, oh, yeah, you know, well, you know, like that's just the scientific consensus. This is the typical response that you get from from like a lockdown or a mask advocate is they'll just say, oh, well, you know, I trust the consensus. Well, that's not an argument. That's not data. There was a famous series of experiments in the 1950s done by a psychologist named Dr. Ash, Solomon Ash. And it was a conformity experiment where they brought in a group of people and everyone in the group except for one person was an actor. But the target, so to speak, didn't know that the rest of the group was actors. And the target was told that they were doing a vision test and they were presented with a graphic showing three lines, you know, straight lines of different lengths. And then they were presented with a fourth line that matched one of the three lines and they were just told that they had to identify which of the three choices was the same length as the example. And it was pretty obvious. Like they made the answer very obvious. They put it right in front of everybody's face. But what they did was they put all the actors first. They put everyone in a line and then they went down the line one by one and got everyone to say their answer out loud with the target individual going last. They ran two trials where all of the actors gave the correct answer. In all of those cases, the target also gave the correct answer 100% of the time, never failed. But then they would run one where all of the actors gave an incorrect answer that was obviously incorrect because the answer was right in front of everyone's face. And they found that the target would conform at least once 75% of the time. And if they averaged it out, it was uh, one third of the time the subject would provide the wrong answer. And then after the trial was unblinded and the targets were informed of what had really been going on and they were asked about it, it was two main reasons that they said they conformed. They said that they thought they were probably right, but they didn't want to go against the group and face potential persecution or ridicule. And the rest of them, they thought that the group was right. They actually believed the group and therefore they believed their own wrong answer. And I think that we are dealing with a a large scale version of this experiment these days. 
there was actually studies conducted later that challenged this experiment in like the 1980s when things had progressed quite a bit into a more free thinking, free spirited society. And they couldn't quite replicate the same results. But I think they also did some studies in the 90s that found the same thing. But it's been, you know, 20, 30, 40 years now since those studies. And I think that we've actually flipped again back to a, a large scale version of this experiment taking place in society where the consensus, everybody understands what the consensus is. They know that they should be thinking that COVID is terrible and dangerous and we need to mask up and get the shot and all this stuff. And they don't know why, other than the fact that everyone else thinks the same thing. And they just don't want to be ridiculed. They don't want to face persecution. And the original studies in the 1950s, they ran a bunch of these with different variations. And one of the variations was having the rest of the group or the consensus come from an authoritative body or somebody that the target would have respected and trusted more than an average individual. And that sent compliance and conformity like just through the roof to even higher levels. So now that we have all these trusted sources and fact checkers and that sort of thing, putting the narrative out there and, and driving it. Yeah, that's where I think we're at. I think that people don't care to look into things themselves. They would rather trust the narrative because it's easy. It's easy on multiple levels. You don't have to do the work and think for yourself. And you also get to go along with the crowd. You're not going against the grain. And that makes life a lot easier for you these days. So yeah, that's kind of what I think about that. Yeah, I think to respond to what you're saying about conformity, I remember numerous conversations I've had with people who've been pro-lockdown, pro-vaccine, and from their perspective, they seem to genuinely believe that COVID was this massive, dangerous thing. In the case of someone like my parents, last year, my mom actually got COVID and she almost died from it. And for her, that was a scary, traumatic experience. And so she was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll get along with this whole idea of wearing masks and getting vaccinated because I don't want to have to go through anything like that ever again. And that's not necessarily something I agree with, but it's something that I can sympathize with. In the case of someone, though, who hasn't experienced COVID for themselves or who has been following all the rules and who got COVID anyways for whatever random reason, and yet still hasn't had their mind fundamentally changed, I think it's a little disappointing to see that we live in a society that doesn't exactly value critical thinking or risk-taking. For myself, I think I could have been the same way. I could have been totally fine with being cooped up in my house for days on end without really interacting with much of anybody because that's the kind of person I am. But I have to go get groceries sometime, right? And at the time, I couldn't get masks because they kept getting sold out at various stores throughout the city. I didn't want to have to buy one from Amazon. And I also didn't want to have to pay for Instacart and have my food arrive two days later, where not everything that I've ordered is matching exactly what I want. And I get extra charges to my bill. It's, it's just not worth it for me. And so that sense of limitation, it pushed me to be willing to experiment and be willing to go out to my nearest grocery store without wearing a mask and interacting with the people there 
hoping that I didn't get sick. And then like the more I did it, the more I became more accustomed to this idea of, okay, I feel safe in this environment. And also I think for myself, I believe in prophecies and predestination and I've received enough prophecies in my life to know once again, where life is going to be for me for the next couple of decades of my life. And so I I know that I'm not going to die from this. And that already gave me a sense of safety. But I also know that I'm in the minority in that regard. And not everyone else around me, even if they're Christian, has received a prophecy. Not everyone is like fully assured of this idea that they could die. And, And so I think yeah, that's, that's something we need to engage more people with. We need to challenge them more often. And if I might ask in your own situation, like what caused you to reach this point where you were willing to experiment and maybe even challenge the narrative? Yeah. Well, okay. So on, on that note, I should, I should mention that also these experiments I was just talking about, they ran many variations. And a few years later, they tried another variation where the only difference was they added one other actor who would provide the correct answer before the target made their decision. And it turns out that even in a group of 12 or, or so participants, all it took was one other individual saying the correct answer that gave the target enough courage to provide the correct answer most of the time. And if that number increased to like two or three or to any significant portion of the actor group, it would take providing the correct answer like almost to 100%. So I feel like there's trailblazers in everything. And consensus is something that that humanity has been struggling with for a long time. Consensus can be very detrimental to us. Once we think that things are a certain way collectively, it's very hard to get out of those grooves. So for me, it's just, it's a very natural thing. Like I've been looking at the world with a skeptical eye for a long time. I had some experiences when I were younger that really opened my eyes that made me into a bit of an independent researcher and investigator. And I always wanted to look at things for myself and decide for myself. I didn't like anybody telling me how things worked or how it was. I wanted to know for certain. I wanted to look at the data where they drew their conclusions from and see if I come to any different ones. So I've been like that for a long time. And I also happen to make music. That's something that I've also been into for a long time. So for me, music was just a channel for me to speak my mind. And in in this case, it it happened to be a good one that people are quite receptive to. But it's ultimately, it's just, it's a very natural thing for me. When all this happened, I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I started looking for good data, which we didn't have very much of at the beginning, but slowly but surely started rolling in. And I mean, I was already pretty skeptical right from the beginning, just reading the news articles it would always be the same thing. Oh yeah, there's this really dangerous new virus that we all need to stay in our houses for. We've got, you know, 50, 60, 100 new cases and we've got three deaths. And then it would list them and it would be like, we have one 96 year old, one 87 year old, you know, one 70, 70 year old. And it was, it was like, okay, so if this virus is so deadly, like what, why is it only taking out people who God bless them are at the end of their lives and we're sort of expecting that outcome at any time. 
So yeah, as the data poured in, I, I looked at it. I remember some of the most revealing stuff right at the beginning was the data that came out of Iceland because all over the world, there was this thing where they didn't want to test people at, at the beginning. You had to basically be like really in poor shape physically for them to even consider testing you because their thinking was that there wasn't enough tests to go around. And early on, I, I thought that I had COVID. I, I actually do still think to this day that I, I got it pretty early on. So I had called Alberta Health Services HealthLink and tried to get a test. And the nurse literally told me, oh, we're not giving out COVID tests for sore throats. She literally told me that unless I need an ambulance right now, there's, there's no way for me to get a COVID test. That was basically the only way is if I was in dire medical attention. And so after hanging up the phone, I was like, oh, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, if what she told me is true, then they're literally only testing people who are at death's door. And then that's going to skew the survival rate very heavily if they're only testing the most severe of the cases, the people who, who need an ambulance. And so I knew just because of that, that the figures would be skewed. And then finally, after like a, a month or so, a couple months, Iceland came out with all this data where they had been like, okay, we've got enough tests. We have a small enough population. We're just going to test everybody or as, as many people as we can. And they found out that the prevalence of the positive tests was like, it was like five times higher than they anticipated, just as I suspected so many people had it and most of those people had no symptoms no symptoms at all around half of them had zero symptoms the other 48 percent had mild symptoms and then it was like 1.8 to 2 percent who were in icus in, in critical condition and or dying from it and then from there i just kept researching kept researching and the clearer the picture became so for me, I, I guess you could say I'm, I'm resistant to conformity because I trust myself. I'm sure that if I would have been a subject in this ASH experiment, I mean, me being me, the person I am today, I would have looked at the rest of the people and been like, what the hell are you talking about? The correct answer is this. But again, that's just sort of who I am. It's how I'm hardwired. I didn't have to try to like do anything different other than just being myself to see through the, the BS and to want to speak out against it. So yeah, for me, it just, it all comes down to the data and understanding what we're dealing with. And I think that anyone who's gone through the motions and done the research, you know, if they have an open mind and they're honest with themselves, they're gonna end up in the same place as me. It doesn't matter how many people are trying to tell you otherwise, I trust myself and what I know to be true and what I've already verified. It's as simple as that. Fair enough. How do you think we might be able to best go about convincing other people who are on board with the restrictions or on board with lockdowns or even who are on the fence? Because I think what we're saying is it's receiving mainstream attention, but it's also like the most extreme parts about what we're trying to warn about. Like... I don't know, vaccinations causing your skin to become magnetized or vaccine shedding or even a great reset world economic forum, all those things that seem so esoteric and abstract and kind of insane. And, and some of the stuff like I myself choose to reject because the, the idea that you're going to receive a part of the virus from people who are getting vaccinated 
that's not something that I've observed. My roommate is currently vaccinated. Uh, I haven't gotten sick from him. I know other people who have been vaccinated. And as far as I'm aware, no one around them has gotten sick outside of the expected side effects. And so I kind of feel like we need to spread this information and make people aware. But at the same time, people are already aware and they just think that it's crazy, even when it's somewhat based in reality. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, it doesn't take much to give other people the courage to provide the correct answer. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lead the way and I'm, I'm trying to make it easier for others to do the same as I'm doing by doing it first. And I don't think there's any one correct answer here. I think it's just a matter of the people who are in the know now speaking up and doing something about it in whatever capacity they can, because the more other people see that, the more encouraged they will be to do the same. And yeah, I think, I think we need as many strategies as we can get. But to be more specific, I think that we are going to have to find a way to bridge that gap directly between the anti-vaxxers and the pro-vaxxers, because now we're in a situation where the line in the sand is drawn pretty clearly. And we all, we've all sort of had to pick a side and, you know, being apathetic and indifferent is basically picking a side at this point. But I think that, you know, the whole rallying thing and gathering in the park and waving signs around, it's been good for, for me for meeting like-minded people and just sort of being immersed in that energy, recharging the soul, so to speak, knowing that you're not alone and, and you're not crazy. But at the same time, it's definitely an echo chamber, uh, a big echo chamber. And it, it can be, I think, intimidating to the uninitiated who may be walking by just seeing a bunch of people in a park shouting and, you know, waving signs and, and everything. And so I think that only serves to like further the divide. And therefore, I think what we need to do is we need to get out of the parks and out of these big groups and more into our communities, into our workplaces on a smaller, smaller, more individual, more personal scale need to start educating people somehow because I've gone over a few examples of this now but the data really is out there and anyone who chooses to look into it and to educate themselves with an open mind that there's only one conclusion that you can come to and that is that you know it's blown out of proportion there isn't really any abnormal danger with the new introduction of this virus which again I do think is actually real and is a real thing it just, you know, they're deliberately convoluting things just to make everything more complicated. But we've already been over that. I think it's just, it just all boils down to education and finding a way to bridge that gap. But the main challenge now, I think, is sunken costs. People are so heavily invested in this narrative that it's now become a part of their identity. And for someone who supported lockdowns and yelled at people for not wearing a mask for, you know, going on two years now, it's going to be extremely difficult for a person like that to separate themselves from the narrative and to consider other possibilities because if they are to admit that the narrative is wrong, then in a sense, they're admitting that their entire personality has been wrong and misguided for the last two years. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of people just are not willing to do that in the face of any amount of information or data, which proves otherwise. 
So I think that's the main challenge before us. But like I said, I'm an optimist and I believe in the human spirit. I believe in the power of the truth. And I think that eventually as more people like myself and Chris Sky and many, many others with platforms even bigger than ours continue to speak out, I think it's going to give others the courage to do the same. And I think that there's a lot more people than we think as well that are beginning to question this, even on the pro-vaccine side of things, especially now that the vaccine has been rolled out and it was supposed to be sort of the end game, the final boss. And now they're saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Delta variant and, you know, maybe it's going to be effective, but like maybe it's not. And I don't know, we might need boosters in six months. So I think for people who have complied and followed all the rules, and you know, got double jabbed and, and did everything right, for them to reach what was supposed to be the endpoint and to have the goalpost moved again, I think that's going to be yet another mistake in the long line of mistakes that the establishment has made here. And it's all gonna serve to just cause people to question more and to speak out more. And eventually the scales will shift and there will be enough people in the no to begin to mount a more effective resistance. That might be a moment where people might realize, oh, crap, this is actually never going to end and it's going to get worse as time goes by. But I think to respond to your point of we need to educate people in having these conversations, it reminds me of a moment that I experienced about five years ago. I was attending a Gay Straight Alliance conference down in Calgary. And while I was sitting through one of the talks in the Q&A period afterwards of the discussion of what could we do to potentially get people to accept homosexuality and transgenderism more, an answer was given, well, we need to educate these people. And I think I remember thinking that well, you can educate these people all you want, but you're not going to be dealing with the fundamental underlying issue that most people have with homosexuality or transgenderism. For some people, they might feel inherently disgusted by it. For some people, it might go against the religion. And I don't know how you necessarily feel about that particular topic, but I think in the case of pro-vaxxers or pro-maskers, there is this philosophical issue that needs to be addressed of of how these people feel about the nature of death and how they feel about other people dying. Like for myself, I'm fairly alone. I don't usually go out into crowds all that often. I know that I'm probably not going to be causing anyone I love to die. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. But I also know that if I were to die myself, I'd be perfectly fine with that. But I don't think other people are as well. And so maybe that's something that we need to address as we have our conversations with them. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that this is kind of a whole other avenue of discussion. But I I think part of what's going to get us out of this is a greater understanding of our human nature and the greater reality that we are all connected to. And, you know, whatever you want to call it, God, creator, source, whatever it is, I think there's a world that encompasses this one, which this world was made out of. And I think that the truth, the ultimate truth is it can be found within each one of us. And I think that there are doorways to this truth within each one of us. 
And that's, to me, that that's going to be a big part of getting through this. Because like you say, if we can change our perception of death and life to what it means to be alive and what this life is really all about, I think that would alleviate a lot of our fear of death and our fear of life. You know, fear in an odd way, fearing death also makes you fear living. And I think it's a tragedy. And I think that's definitely one of the hurdles that we have to get over here in our journey of getting through this to the next stage of our evolution. But I would say, though, as a Christian, the answer would not be you find the truth within yourself because that's postmodernism. And we're already dealing with the consequences of that in our own culture. What I would say as a Christian is that you're going to be able to find the truth in Jesus Christ and you're going to find your salvation in him. And maybe you don't agree with me on that. Maybe you're in your own process of coming to accept that. But I do find the idea that we as humans, as much as we can claim to know ourselves and we can trust ourselves, we can also fairly deceive ourselves as well. And if I am going to be relying on anyone, I don't trust the authorities. I don't trust the government, but I do trust this invisible guy in the sky who came down to earth, took on flesh, died and was resurrected, all that wonderful stuff. If I can choose to put my trust in anyone, that's the guy that I'm putting my trust in. I can fully respect that. and understand it. But I think that's where we're going to have to agree to disagree. Like I said, there's a ton of overlap for me in the Christian philosophies and my own, like way more than I thought there was after, like I said, speaking to my friend. But for me, I'm very big on personal responsibility. And I prefer to place the responsibility on myself rather than anywhere else. And so, you know, for me to enact change in the world, like it's not that I, I'm opposed to the idea of help from an outside source. And I do think that's possible, but I just feel like here as a, as a human being having this experience, my experience is up to me. It's, it's my responsibility, how I respond to the environment that I'm placed in. And I do believe that the divine power is within all of us and that we have direct access to it. And another way of saying it is like, you probably won't like this, but like we are all shards, shattered shards of God, um, sort of the fingertips of God, God himself out here feeling his way through infinity, God trying to discover what God himself is through us who are him. Well, you're right that I don't agree with that, but I can also understand the perspective that you don't always want to rely on a deus ex machina. You want to have some sort of personal agency in the mix. And I don't think that necessarily contradicts my view of God. I don't believe that we should always let God run everything in the background and we're just going to be lazy and we're not going to do anything. I do believe that we have the opportunity to work together with God in order to fulfill his plans and purposes in this life. And I do believe that regardless of what you believe, you are still acting as a vessel because you're still helping out this community. You're still willing to engage with people like me and your friend Misty. And I think that is certainly very admirable. One more question that I want to ask before we wrap things up. Do you see yourself making a career out of these protest songs that you continue on releasing? 
like you're going to release an album on iTunes or Bandcamp and, you know, people will be able to purchase it? Or do you think there's going to be a, a point where it's possible that you and plenty of other freedom fighters could lose the plot and we could lose sight of what we're actually fighting for. Because that's that's sort of what I feel like the pro-vaxxers and the pro-restriction people are doing, where they're going out to protests and saying, we want more restrictions because the virus is still a threat and we need to test, trace, and isolate. And it's like, seriously, most of our population is vaccinated. Like, why are we so afraid right now? Yeah, well... I do think that there is an an overarching agenda based on control. And therefore, I don't think that we're out of the woods yet. I think that it's very likely that the worst is actually yet to begin. And so I don't think that we're going to lose the plot. Although I totally get what you're saying, you know, about just sort of the whole echo chamber, you know, monetizing the freedom movement. And uh, I I think there, there already is some losing sight of the, the goal in that sense. But I think that the fight is, is just beginning. And so as time goes on, I, I feel like I'm only going to have more and more to talk about. But I've only put out three songs so far, and it's already changed my life to a, a large degree. But at the end of the day, like I'm an artist, and there's lots of things that I can talk about. I just happened to start building a career under the umbrella of the scamdemic. So now that my foot's in the door, and I'm off the ground, so to speak. I am going to persist with this. And I do see myself making a career out of music, regardless of whatever is happening in the world. Although I do think that things are going to continue to be pushed upon us, probably even more aggressively from here on in. And so, yeah, like I said, I don't think I'm going to have any shortage of current events to keep talking about in my songs. Do you ever see yourself releasing a song where you talk about doing something normal, like hanging out at a pool or having a bite to eat with friends? Or is that just too yeah. tame? No. So, uh, you know, I, like I said, I've been rapping for a long time. I just, I never got serious about releasing it or, or going commercial with it until recently. But I've, I've made many songs out of the context of current events and, and the scamdemic. But yeah, I actually have a song planned. I have three songs on the stove right now. One of them will be out right away. We're trying to get the other two out by the end of September. And then after I get through all of those that are still about current events and everything that's going on, I have one song that's very personal and it's about relationships and love, basically. And so we're going to throw that one in the mix at the end of this run and um, just see what the response is. And yeah, now that I have a following, I'm sort of interested by that concept in itself and I want to engage with my following and see what they like and what they don't like so yeah it's it's actually it's already in the works there will be a song coming out that literally has nothing to do with COVID although it is still true to my nature it's very spiritual in a sense it's very deep and nuanced like all of my stuff is but it's totally out of the context of COVID. Fair enough thank you for coming on this conversation went in some very interesting directions. I found it very fulfilling and I'm glad that you accepted the invite to be a part of this show. And hopefully I'll get a chance to see you in person again at another freedom rally, assuming we all don't get ticketed and arrested there. 
Well, we should be good for about another another month or so at least, right? Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy the freedom while it lasts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. And it was great to chat with you as well. I feel very enriched and fulfilled myself. And uh, yeah, I do hope to see you again in the near future, my friend. So thanks for having me on. And yeah, be well. Anyone who finds their way to this, blessings. And thank you for being here as well. Thank you. See you, RSC, and see you, everyone else. Take care, Nathan. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest, R.C. the Rapper. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.